Hi, this is Brennan Spiegel, co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology. I want to welcome you to our monthly podcast. And this month, fortunate to have with us Dr. Millie Long, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of North Carolina, and also the co-senior author of the new ACG Clinical Guidelines on the Management of Ulcerative Colitis in Adults. Thanks, Millie, for being with us today. Thanks, Brennan, for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So this is a huge document, uh, and we've only got a short period of time on a podcast to get through it. So right up front, I want to advise our listeners that if you are interested in anything about ulcerative colitis, you definitely want to get this document, download it from the ACG website. It's, uh, you know, spend a good few hours reading it line by line because it's an excellent document that covers all of UC comprehensively, evidence-based, uh, and very thorough. So uh, just on behalf of the college, I want to congratulate you and thank you, Millie, and, and your co-authors, including uh, David Rubin and others for the heroic work in putting this together. Oh, thanks. You know, we all learned so much putting it together. And I think um, through the process, realized that we wanted it to be as comprehensive as possible, as you mentioned. So we cover everything from diagnosis to medical management to the hospitalized patient and even um, address dysplasia surveillance and ulcerative colitis. So hopefully this document can be a one-stop shopping experience for your readers so they can really get up-to-date information in an evidence-based fashion on all aspects of ulcerative colitis management. Absolutely. And for fellows in training and, and even for those listeners who are maybe studying for the boards or recertifying, there's a lot of great information here. So why don't we just get right into it, um, starting with diagnosis. Uh, so, you know, sometimes it can be easy to diagnose UC. Sometimes it can be hard. Uh, tell us a little bit about what's new and important uh, when it comes to diagnosing UC. So I think one of the things this document um, helps is it gives us an evidence-based approach to uh, diagnosis. And one of the things that we very strongly recommended is that um, stool testing should be performed for C. diff um, to rule this out initially at diagnosis. We also really looked at the evidence behind some of the newer um, serology panels um, that uh, aid in the diagnosis of ulcerative colitis. And actually, we ended up recommending against those serology panels. And so I think this can be really helpful to the providers out there that there may be some costs associated with those without a lot of diagnostic utility. And we reviewed the evidence behind that. But I think those are some new, um, fairly strong recommendations out of the, um, the statement in regards to diagnosis. Of course, all of the other standard workup applies surrounding diagnosis, you know, obviously uh, looking for um, trigger symptoms, looking for bleeding, looking at the indications for endoscopic evaluation. All of that um, is still holds, but I think those are the, the newest um, recommendations. So is there any role for the um, antibody panels these days? So we would say not right at the moment um, that the the evidence in terms of um, differentiating um, ulcerative colitis from other um, symptoms, uh, including irritable bowel syndrome, is not necessarily there um, for the test. That doesn't mean that the field is not um, evolving and that further evidence um, may not um, help to change this at this point. But at this point um, in my practice, I'm actually not using those assays at all. What about fecal calprotectin? So fecal calprotectin is useful, and I think this is something that's very important with this guideline statement. In my clinical practice, I have had some trouble getting fecal calprotectin covered by insurance companies because it hasn't been discussed in, in guideline statements. We know it's not a perfect test, but it is a test that serves as a proxy measure of inflammation, and over time um, can certainly be used to monitor for signs of relapse. Um, it does seem um, to correlate, particularly in UC, um, with inflammatory burden relative well. And so this guideline document does 
discussed, um, fecal calprotectin, and the fact that it can be used um, both in the arena of diagnosis and also in the arena of assessing um, response to therapy. And so I think that will be useful. We review the, the evidence behind it and, and the accuracy. Um, obviously, it's not perfect, but it definitely adds to our, um, you know, our, our treatment paradigm, really helps us in our, in our model of trying to assess as we start a therapy for response. And so I think that this will be useful for our readers in terms of the use of fecal calprotectin more broadly. So once we diagnose ulcerative of colitis, uh, it's important to evaluate the severity of the disease, both in terms of where to start with therapy, which we'll get to, but also how to monitor response to therapy. So what do the new guidelines say, you know, clinicians should do in terms of assessing severity? How should they do that? So this is definitely new with this guideline statement, and we're excited about this, in that we feel that in terms of decisions surrounding disease severity, these used to be made based on these clinical indices that really took into account the patient's symptoms at the moment, how much bleeding they were having, how much diarrhea they were having, you know, obviously if they had a fever, um, if they had abdominal pain, you know, those sorts of criteria. But what, what we have done with this guideline statement is really refine this definition to say that it actually needs to be uh, based on multiple factors, both those symptoms of how the the patient is doing, the bleeding and normalization of bowel habits, but also the inflammatory burden, meaning that if someone has quite severe inflammation endoscopically, even if their symptoms are only mild, that would put them into an arena of a more moderate to severe disease. The other thing we feel that's important to assess and include in this disease severity measure is the disease course, meaning that if the patient has previously had a hospitalization, a need for steroids, or a failure to respond to medication, that needs to be taken into consideration as we're defining disease severity to, to determine which medications they should use. Finally, um, the last component of disease severity is the disease impact, which is the functionality and quality of life changes for the patient. So we think all of that um, needs to be considered. And one of the nice things that I'll direct your readers to is we actually have a table, it's table four in the document that has the proposed new American College of Gastroenterology um, ulcerative colitis activity index that's modified from all these resources that takes into account things like fecal calprotectin, um, endoscopy score, um, the patient's clinical symptoms, and uses that to help us to differentiate remission, mild, moderate to severe, or of course, um, fulminant disease. So that can, can be helpful in terms of, of defining where in this trajectory a patient is to helping um, select the medications, because still, our medications are really much more under the umbrella of you know, certain medications for mild to moderate and different medications for moderate to severe. So perhaps taking into account all of those factors will help put your patient in the right bucket, so to speak, um, for selecting a medication. Right. Okay. Well, that's wise advice. And so that's an important table for the readers to look at, um, clinically useful. So let's say, you know, they go through that process and evaluate the patient. And, and it would most commonly, at least for non-referral centers, patients sort of mild to moderate range. Uh, what do the guidelines say uh, are sort of the first line approaches? How should we How should we be treating these patients with mild to moderate, you know, outpatient disease? Absolutely. And so the mesalamine therapies are very effective uh, for mild to moderate disease. And right. in they fact, most haven't they, gone away with this guideline, right? We they have, have not gone away. They are excellent. Yeah. We've used them first line, mild to moderate. I think one um, key point of the recommendation is, is that particularly in patients with kind of left-sided disease, those patients actually would benefit from a combined approach with both oral and topical therapy, meaning the enemas and the um, suppositories um, are definitely, they add to the effect. And so we actually 
actually recommend um, the that for patients with left-sided disease that they uh, have both. Um, you know, the the a lot of people are left on the oral because it's easier to take, but the um, topical really adds to this. And so the evidence shows that the 5-ASA rectal enemas at a dose of at least one gram daily combined with the oral dose of at least two gram daily are more effective than oral alone. So I would, I would I've always thought home. that, right? I mean, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but, you know, we, we hear, you know, patients come to us and we're dealing with their whole colon, but it's that last few, you know, last few centimeters that really causes the urgency and the frequency and these symptoms that really affect quality of life. So we might clean up the whole colon, but there's those last few centimeters we really need to address to make quality of life get better. Is, it, isn't that, is that kind of what you're saying? That's exactly what we're saying. And the fact that I, I think it's easy to drop off those topicals or, or, or not use them, and those have become really important. So emphasizing the role of the enemas and the suppositories, the mesalamine-based medications. We also, in this guideline, actually compare those topical mesalamine to topical steroids. And one of the things your readers may not be aware of is we all think of, well, steroids have to be more potent, right? Because oral steroids are so potent for treating inflammation. No, in fact, the mesalamine-based therapies are preferred um, over the steroid enemas from an efficacy standpoint. And so really, those mesalamine-based enemas should be um, first line for those uh, left-sided patients. It is good to know. I, I, I did not know that. So, uh, all right. So, you know, that's tried and true stuff. Um, this combo therapy is an important concept that's easy to start practicing right away uh, for those of us right. that see more of the mild to moderate. Uh, what happens next? Okay, so you try that. Um, mesalamine's not working. Patients are maybe not severe. They're not fulminant, but they're still having persistent symptoms. What's the next approach? What do we do now? Well, again, one of the things that I would take into consideration is some of those factors we discussed in terms of disease severity. So they haven't responded to traditional me- traditional mechanisms. Um, we we'd kind of say how severe is their inflammation? You know, how symptomatic are they? What is their impact um, on those factors? This is someone where certainly, you know, a course of steroids is still indicated um, to induce remission. These can be used uh, effectively in mild to moderate or moderate to severe disease. Um, but again, if that patient after that course of steroids is really not, it, it has not reached full remission, one of the things these guidelines do recommend is the idea of re-looking in some way uh, objectively, whether that be through a fecal calprotectin or through a, a, a flexible sigmoidoscopy to assess for endoscopic healing. The idea that we want things healed up, and if it's not, then that patient really needs to move into the moderate to severe algorithm where we have various agents, including um, small molecules as well as biologic agents um, for the treatment of ulcerative colitis. So we do need to consider um, you know, all of those factors to help us to determine when that patient has bridged from mild up to moderate to severe. So we'll come back to those. Uh, now, if you follow along, let's say a patient does respond to steroids, which is quite common, mm-hmm. um, but now they have another flare, maybe they get another round of steroids. Uh, how many rounds of steroids should we be using? When should we start an immunomodulator? Has that changed at all, or is there any new thinking around that? No, the immunomodulator data um, have been reviewed uh, in the statement as well. Immunomodulators uh, definitely can be used for maintenance of uh, mild to moderate ulcerative colitis. Um, that is definitely in the treatment algorithm, which we would discuss with the patient in a shared decision-making approach as to, um, it, as to its use. Um, certainly, there are individuals who may have somewhat more risk with certain um, immunomodulators, and we would discuss that. Um, I think that one of the key points is is that, that the need for that next step up, what we want to try to avoid is kind of recurrent steroid 
steroid courses where steroid, you know, twice a year, I'm okay. The argument is, no, they're not because the need for steroids twice a year refers to inflammation not being fully healed. We haven't treated that patient to reach our target of clinical remission as well as endoscopic remission. So those are individuals where you do need to make that step up. An immunomodulator is a reasonable choice, but also that person at that point really fits into the moderate algorithm. So not only would you have the immunomodulator option, but you would also have um, an anti-TNF option, you would have an anti-integrin option, and you would have um, a JAK inhibitor option in the moderate to severe paradigm. So when we get there, now life gets a little bit more complicated, uh, particularly for those of us that don't, you know, see IBD all day long. Um, how are you guys now navigating that decision? Because it seems like there's just every time there's a new guideline, there's so many new molecules and compounds and different mechanisms of action. So what do the guidelines say about how to navigate that decision? The guidelines tell us about the efficacy of these drugs in both the uh, TNF naive as well as the TNF failure population. The only comparative effectiveness study we have in ulcerative colitis is actually the UC success study where individuals were on either uh, infliximab alone, infliximab combined with azathioprine or azathioprine alone. And in this study, the combination of infliximab with azathioprine um, was more effective in terms of not only clinical remission, but healing um, the bowel endoscopically. So therefore, the guidelines recommend combination therapy um, with azathioprine uh, or 6MP when using infliximab. The guidelines do report the caveat that we can't we can't know if it's a class effect. The, the evidence are not as strong for the other anti-TNF agents because that data was with uh, infliximab in terms of the combination approach. But that is definitely one arena where we have robust data. The other agents we have in all of the clinical trials, which are the highest level of data that we use to grade the evidence, to provide the evidence level, um, they were all compared to placebo. Um, and so we don't have that same comparative effectiveness data. What we do have is we have efficacy data, both in TNF-naive as well as TNF-exposed populations, which we graded and recommend each of these agents. At this point, we can't tell you um, one agent over the other because we don't have those comparative effectiveness studies. But we do want to emphasize that any of these agents, you know, it has evidence behind it and it should and could be used in patients with moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. Um, and, and we want people to be able to use these data because if there is a, a certain um, scenario where a patient might, for example, be better with one particular class, we need to make sure that you have this evidence behind you because if their insurance company denies that, you have the evidence to say, but this agent could be used first line in moderate to severe disease. And that's what we've provided here is that high level of evidence behind each of these classes of medications. So you're saying we're going to have to use our judgment. We can't have boxes and areas yep. for everything. At this point, uh, we don't have enough comparative effectiveness data to really compare head to head. So there's some very pragmatic decisions that have to be made about you know, coverage and access and you know uh, mode of administration. You know how how patients you know what they how they prefer to receive their medication. There's all sorts of factors. So uh, the the guidelines outline that very well. Um, all right, so we've gone through this. Now, one thing you did mention before we move on is uh, the combo uh, with, immuno, you know, with immunomodulator and infliximab. Uh, should we be worried about hepatosplenic T-cell lymphoma, or uh, what's the latest on that? Any, anything new? So, you know, obviously what, what the data show is it's a very rare complication, but it seems to occur in younger men, you know, men under the age of 35. And so one thing that one could consider in those younger age group is using uh, an alternate 
different uh, immunomodulators such as methotrexate um, in that age group, which many people are doing in practice, and there's a good bit of observational data to that effect. The data aren't as high in terms of efficacy as we see with the azathioprine. And in many instances, um, you know, obviously in my clinical practice, I still use that when indicated in young patients. But you need to have kind of an informed um, shared decision-making discussion surrounding that, uh, particularly in that that one age group, um, because we do see that that signal for something that's not very common, but is obviously has a, a lot of morbidity associated with it. So we'd like that's to try the to problem is it's it. not a common, but that age group is very common, right? Many many right. many of our IBD patients are under the age of 35, and well, maybe about half of them are met. So this is a, a large group of people who we manage, um, and it's you know a very rare consequence, but a catastrophic one. So you know, I guess your point about shared decision making and ensuring that you know all of the evidence and you know discussion about true risks, which can be you know technically difficult sometimes, is really important before engaging in that in that combo therapy. Correct. All right. So why don't we uh, just kind of wrap up because there's so much we can go through, but I do want to skip ahead a little bit. And in the guidelines, uh, for those that are following along, there's discussions about how to manage the hospitalized patient, uh, and I'm sure we can talk for an hour just about that alone. Uh, but I did want to just uh, jump ahead to the end, talk a little bit about uh, dysplasia surveillance, because here there's been some important and very practical updates. Maybe you can tell our listeners about what the guidelines say around this. Sure, absolutely. And so this is an arena that is evolving, as your listeners know. Um, there's been a lot of work uh, recently in terms of trying to determine um, the best means to survey patients with ulcerative colitis. And in prior work, um, when standard definition scopes have been compared against a chromoendoscopy, uh, obviously using a dye-based strategy to highlight lesions during surveillance, chromoendoscopy has demonstrated superiority over standard definition um, and so in our guideline statement, we do actually recommend dye spray chromoendoscopy for standard definition colonoscopes. However, many of us in our practice these days uh, are using high definition colonoscopes. And, and therefore, in my practice, we do that. And I, and I suspect in many people's practices across the country, that is the case. And these colonoscopes are inherently different. They just have better visualization. And so one of the things we did is we looked specifically at the data surrounding high definition colonoscopes use uh, as compared to chromoendoscopy. And actually, um, there was a very nice, um, relatively recent randomized controlled trial that looked at that high-definition colonoscope, um, and they used narrowband imaging as well, um, as compared to chromoendoscopy, and they really showed um, no difference. So, in other words, we think that our your readers will have the option to either perform chromoendoscopy or um, to perform, um, you know, the high-definition um, colonoscopy as they standardly do. Um, with the augmentation of NBI um, to help with the surveillance process. And we think that's very important because we feel that both of these options really provide the patient with appropriate um, surveillance and that the, depending on the, um, the skill set and the experience of the provider, that either option would be uh, sufficient. And I'm um, proud to say that paper was published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology uh, last year as a randomized controlled trial. And it's great to see that uh, our own publications are affecting the guidelines. So uh, just uh, uh, thank you for that. And, and it's also uh, sometimes appealing to see that all the fancy kind of expensive toys that uh, they're not necessarily toys, but things we could be using don't necessarily add a whole lot of extra, you know, incremental gain compared to the good old fashioned, you know, careful surveillance with a high definition white light. 
Uh, so am I, am I, uh, is that a fair description of that your? Is, that is a, a fair description. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, again, um, we can talk for a long time uh, because these guidelines are expansive and excellent. So I once again just uh, encourage our listeners to go to the ACG Clinical Guidelines on Ulcerative Colitis in Adults. It's available on the uh, AJG and ACG Guideline pages, uh, and uh, they're really expansive. And as you go through them, you'll notice that um, it's been summarized in a series of tables uh, with very specific recommendations. And we've gone through a few of them today. Uh, I don't want to thank you, Millie, for your time today. And as I said before, on behalf of the college, for such an amazing amount of work that went into this massive, uh, massive project. I can only imagine how many words there are in this. I'm not even sure. It's like a, it's like a small book. So thank you and your, and your co-authors for all the work that you did with this guideline. Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. We had a great team working on it. Uh, we apologize for taking up so many pages of your journal, Brennan, but I, I think it's worthwhile. I think it'll be very worthwhile for your readers. Definitely pages well filled. So thank you again. And uh, until next time, uh, this is Brennan Spiegel, Editor-in-Chief, along with Brian Lacey with the American Journal of Gastroenterology. And thank you for listening to this month's podcast. 